Welcome to the Faith Lakeside podcast. Each week you'll hear another great message that will help you know God and make Him known in your life. Join us each Sunday at 1045 a.m. and throughout the week in small groups to make the most of your learning experiences. Now, sit back, relax with a great cup of coffee and a notebook and enjoy this week's message. So we are going to continue our, <clears throat> our series uh, that is uh, glory and redemption, looking through the whole Old Testament and seeing the story of Jesus and the story of Israel. And so when we, we look, we have uh, just, just some, some uh, catching us up and, and getting us to a point where we remember where we're at. We, we see what God has done. We've got the, the, the kingdom of Israel with the strongest king, Saul, who failed, with the, the, uh, the faithful king, the most passionate king, David, who failed ultimately, the wisest king, uh, Solomon, who failed. And, and ultimately, as, as Steve shared last week, the whole concept of the kingdom of Israel, it, it was divided in half and then... One half lasted for a couple hundred years. The other half lasted for a few hundred or another hundred or so more. And, and you end up with this, this divided kingdom that is a failure, essentially, with the northern half worshiping false gods and, and worshiping Yahweh improperly when they do worship him. And then the southern kingdom that remains a little more faithful, but still it's a, it's a mixed bag of results. And then over time, the Assyrian Empire comes in and takes over the northern kingdom and wipes them off of the face of the earth, essentially. They, they really just disappeared. What was normal for, for empires in this day and age, they'd come in, they'd raid, they'd take over a people, and then they would take them captive and spread them out throughout the empire to try and steal from them their identity and to, uh, to mix them up into the, the culture of the empire. And that's essentially what happened to the northern kingdom. And the southern kingdom remains. It becomes a, a province of Assyria, essentially a, a protectorate. Uh, they remain for another hundred or so years. And then eventually the Babylonian empire under Nebuchadnezzar comes in and, and takes the southern kingdom captive. And so what we have left of the people of Israel is nothing. I mean, they, they don't have their land anymore. They don't have their temple. They don't have their, their own identity. They have been taken up into foreign empires, and, and they, are, they are slowly being tried to grind them into the everyday life of foreign cultures. And so what's, what's going on is, is it, it seems like all of God's plans to redeem mankind are failures, that his plan to... to reveal himself through a chosen people, through a chosen family, through chosen leaders. It fails over and over again. And some of us might be tempted to say, well, this must be a failure of God's plan. But, but that's not the case. In Second Chronicles chapter 36, verse 21, we see that the word of God tells us that this actually fulfilled the word of the Lord through Jeremiah, and the land enjoyed its Sabbath rest all the days of the desolation until 70 years were fulfilled. And so that this was actually part of God's plan, part of, of what he desired to unfold in the process of redeeming all of mankind. And so over time, uh, they, they are in exile. The, the Babylonian empire becomes the Median empire, becomes the Persian empire. And uh, eventually, God's people end up back in Jerusalem, rebuilding the temple, rebuilding the city. And we'll talk about that in coming weeks. But, but when we look at this, is it, is it that 
all of this failure, all of this shortcoming, is this another setup? Is this another do-over for God's plan? Because as we've gone through glory and redemption, it, it looks like God's plan for mankind has just failed over and over again. Adam and Eve, what happens? It fails. They sin, they fall away from God, they rebel, they incur sin and wrath and death. And then God sends another person or two. We got like a list of people. And with Adam and Eve, we see that God had made a promise that there would be a man who would come and who would would squash the head of evil, who would crush the head of Satan, who would crush the head of sin. So God tells Adam and Eve, okay, so we, this, we kind of failed here, but, but I got a plan. I'm going to send a guy, and he's going to make things right. So we've got a man who will, who will defeat all of sin and evil. And, and, and then we see it's uh, this expectation for a man who will defeat sin and evil. It, it kind of it wells up throughout this story that we've already talked about, right? We see Cain from Cain and Abel. His parents thought Cain's going to be the guy who defeats sin. What does Cain end up doing? Killing his brother. He kind of fell short of expectations, didn't he? We'd say, Cain's a failure. And then we look at, at, at Seth. Seth is the, the, the next son born to Adam and Eve after what happens with Cain and Abel. And, and they have an expectation that maybe Seth's the guy who's going to save us all. And Seth just kind of disappears into biblical history. Noah we see Noah, and actually his name is, is a, this hopefulness that he will save us. And, and Noah had this expectation. His family thought, maybe Noah's the guy who will crush the head of evil, who will save us from sin and make things right. And, and what happens with Noah? Well, he is faithful. He builds an ark. He floats for a year. He, he lands. He plants a vineyard. And then he gets drunk and naked and continues to make terrible choices just like everyone before him. And, and so what we see is, is that in, in these men that there was this, this hope that maybe this is the guy. Well, it was never the guy. It was never the guy. And so more time passes and, and we end up in Genesis chapter 12 and God chooses Abram who becomes Abraham and says, I'm going to take you and I'm going to make you into a great nation and I'm going to bless you and I'm going to bless all the people of the earth through you. So God's plan says, okay, so there's going to be a guy, but I'm going to narrow it down. It's going to be a guy, and he's going to come from the family of Abraham. He's going he's to be through the family of Abraham. I'm going to use this one family to bless the whole world. So what happens with Abraham? Well, he pretty much just gets old and dies. All right, so well, what happens to his son? His son Isaac. Well, Isaac, he has a couple of boys, and then what does he do? He gets old and he dies. And then Jacob, Jacob, I mean, maybe he's the guy. I mean, he's the youngest, but God liked him more. And maybe he's the guy. Well, no, it's, it's not Jacob. Because Jacob, he just marries some women, has a bunch of kids. And he gets old and he dies. Th- these, these are not the men. These are not the saviors. I mean, we even see that, uh, that there's going to be a man who comes who's Moses, right? He, he's called up. He's from the line of Abraham and he does lead God's people out, but he's not the guy either. But what God does say about Moses is that there's going to be someone in the future, this man that I've been promising from Genesis chapter three, the man that's going to come from the line of Abraham, not only will he do that, but he'll also be a prophet and he'll be a prophet uh, who, who is like Moses, And so we've got this promise of the man who's going to come and save us, 
the promise of the man who's going to reveal the glory of God and redeem all of mankind. And it starts with, it's a man, and he's from the family of Abraham, and he's going to be a prophet like Moses. And so this, this story is unfolding, and then as it continues to unfold, we run through judges who are all failures. We, we run through kings who, who fail, who fall short. They're not the man. And then we get to King David, and, and in King David, the promise expands. The description of this man who is going to come and save the world, it continues to expand and grow. And so the prophet he said to David uh, that that uh, or said to God to David, blah 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 blah. Golly gee, I'm excited and on cold medicine, and those two things don't go together for me. I've never been much of a druggie, and so I've never learned how to work it out, you know, and and be a high functioning drug addict. Um, sorry, that sounds really weird. It's the cold medicine. Uh, I'm blaming that. I'm blaming that. Let's rewind. Do we need to start with prayer again? <laughs> no. So we got King David, and God speaks to King David and, and begins to say, you're not the man who's going to save everybody. You're not the rescuer, but there's going to come a guy who is the rescuer, and he's going to be from your lineage, and he is going to be the one. Oh, no, sorry. I skipped ahead to David. This is Samuel, actually. Forgive me. Samuel, the priest. No, Eli. So I got a problem here too. If you guys look in the back, my screen is not working and my notes are not in the back. They're right here and they're really tiny and I'm getting older. (sighs) So Erica, I think you said something, but I can't hear you because my ears are clogged up. Probably if you, but I don't know how to describe it from down here. So, oh, it's all good. Yeah. Shelly's telling me it's okay. I haven't messed up so bad yet that we should just pray and be done. (sighs) We're this close, though. We're this close, guys. Because you know what? I'm not the man either, right? I'm not the one who was was, uh, sent. That's uh, that's a good song. I don't know what happened. I think some of my my commands just kind of got eaten up uh, the last couple of weeks, and that's okay. It's not a problem. I will slow down and cope better. All right, so Samuel was, was a young man, but the prophet, not prophet, priest Eli was over him. Eli was a, a, a good priest. His sons were terrible. And, and his sons get judged. If you remember his sons, they, they, they end up being killed and, and as judgment for them. And, and what happens is, is God says, listen, Eli, you've been okay, but I'm going to send a better priest. I'm going to send a priest who will be perfect, not like you, because you haven't been so perfect. You've been good, but you're not perfect. So he promises that, that he's going to send this man. That's better. Thank you so much. The man who is to come will be a priest better than Eli. So we, we've got a man who will defeat sin and evil. This man, he will descend from Abraham. He'll be a prophet like Moses. He'll be a priest better than Eli. And then, then we get to King David. And, and God says to David, I will raise up after you your descendant who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he will be my son. Your house and kingdom will endure before me forever and your throne will be established forever. 
So we, we, we start to get the, the picture of this man that's coming to save us. And it gets narrowed down and, and, and more complete over time. And, and we see that this man who will come is going to be a man who will be a king greater than David. His kingdom will last forever. So we've got a man. We're looking for a man to defeat sin and evil from the line of Abraham, a prophet like Moses, a priest better than Eli, a king even greater than David. And then we get to David's, David's dead, the kingdom is gone. Has God's plan failed? Because it feels like it has at this point. God said, there's a guy coming. And now there are no more people left from this guy to come from is what it feels like. Like everything has just collapsed. That, that everything has fallen short. And so the question is, 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 are we at a point where God's plan fails? Well, what's beautiful about this is the whole Old Testament is not the, the story of how God's plan kind of hiccups and fails and God has to rejigger. No, God's plan is sure the whole time. But the story of the Old Testament is God revealing to rebellious mankind their need for glory and redemption. And the reason I put a pouty kid down there is because if you've ever worked with a child who is a know-it-all, and I was that child, right? That when you say, can I help you do that? What do they say? I got it. I could do it myself. And then you let them do it themselves and what happens? They fail miserably, usually. And then, then it's like, I don't know why it didn't work. Because you didn't know what you were doing. And I was right here ready to help you. I was right here ready to provide what you needed to be successful. And yet you refused. The Old Testament, when we see what looks like God's plan failing over and over again, is actually God allowing us to learn the lesson that nothing we can do without him, nothing that we'll do on our own is sufficient to save us. We can have great kings. We can have great prophets. We can have uh, great families. We can have great jobs. We, we, we can have so much good in this world, and yet nothing we can do will ever save us. The Old Testament is the revelation to all of us that on our own, we're just pouty little children trying to do things our own way, and we will always miss the mark on salvation based on our own works. Always. There's no king good enough from amidst us. There's no prophet who's right enough. There is no priest who's righteous enough. There is no man from amongst us who is good enough to save us. And it doesn't matter how many votes they get, they're not good enough. It doesn't matter how many times you voted for them, they're not good enough. And you see, that the whole Old Testament is, is to get us to a point of understanding that every time it looks like God has failed, it's not that his plan has failed and he's got to back up and say, oh, oh, I got to figure this out. Wait, David wasn't the guy? Oh, no. Solomon wasn't the guy? The kingdom didn't work? Oh, no. But instead, it is a revelation that mankind will always fail, but his promises are sure and his plan will continue even as we fall short. So when it looks like God's plan is failing, what's interesting is usually that's when God's taking the time to sit back and say, let me give you some more details about my plan. You think it fell short. 
You think it failed. All I've done is prove that you can't do it and you don't understand. Let me give you some more details about my plan. And so we have this this thing that he's already revealed to us up at this point that there's going to be a man who will come and redeem who will defeat sin and evil. He'll come from Abraham. He'll be a prophet like Moses. He'll be a priest greater than Eli. He'll be a king greater than David. All right, so God, all your people are in exile. The kingdom that was supposed to make a difference is gone. The temple is destroyed. How are you going to make this work, God? And so God continues to tell us how it's going to work and what this man is going to look like. In 120 years of Saul through Solomon, Saul, David, and Solomon, these other books were written. The Psalms, Ecclesiastes, Proverbs, and the Song of Solomon. God continued to inspire new scripture, to reveal himself more fully. Even as history is unfolding and God's people are failing miserably, God continues to speak through them and to them and tell them, this is what the man will look like. In the 209 years of the northern kingdom, we see their their history unfold terribly. But in those years, God sent prophets. God sent men who began to reveal even more details about what the man who would redeem us would look like. In the 334 years of the southern kingdom, we see good kings and bad kings. We see things go right and things go terribly wrong. And in those 334 years, as the kingdom failed, as the plan seems to go sideways, God sends these men and has these books written to reveal to us even more details regarding his plan of redemption. We got Joel and Nahum, Micah, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Zephaniah. That's a fun name. Habakkuk. Some of these minor prophets, these prophets who spoke into the lives of God's people and revealed more of what this man would look like. In the 70 years of exile, we have other prophets, Daniel, Obadiah, Ezekiel, who continue to share more about God's plan. So in all these years, as it looks like God's plan is going completely sideways and it's stuck in the ditch, and where will redemption come from? God is telling us through his prophets and through inspired writings, listen, you still don't see it all yet. I want you to know more about the man that I'm going to send. Because none of the kings that you trusted in were good enough. And none of the prophets that you listened to were perfect And none of the priests that you worshiped under really knew what they were doing in the way that the priest that will come knows. And so over these years, God continues to reveal to mankind pictures, snippets of what the man who will redeem us looks like. In the Old Testament, we find over 400 prophecies about the Messiah, about Jesus, 400 specific prophecies, and most of those, in fact, the majority of those that we see in the minor prophets and the prophets, they came in eras where God's people and mankind were under intense judgment and were failing miserably. And yet in the midst of that, God continues to tell his people, I'm going to send somebody to redeem you. Here's what he's going to look like. 
He keeps adding to the job description, if you will. He keeps revealing bit by bit what this man will look like, who this man will be. We already know that this will be a man who will defeat sin and evil from the promise in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. He's going to descend from Abraham, Genesis chapter 12. He'll be a prophet like Moses we see from Deuteronomy 18. He'll be a priest greater than Eli in 1 Samuel chapter 1. He'll be a king greater than David in 1 Samuel chapter 15. So, so we see that, that God is revealing slowly and surely what the Redeemer will look like, who the man will be when he finally comes, so we'll be able to recognize him. But in this era where it looks like God's plan has gone completely off the rails, God is saying, no, no, my plan is still sure. And let me tell you a little bit more about the guy who's coming. Let me tell you a little bit more about the man who will save us or save you all. Here's, here's some things that, that uh, God's word teaches us about this savior that is to come. This one who will redeem us. Psalm 16 verses 8 through 11 says that he will be resurrected. This is a prophecy about him that is wrapped up in a song written by King David. That he'll bring a new covenant Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 31, that he'll be the one who establishes a new contract with mankind based not upon works, but upon faith. We see in in Psalm 22 that he'll be one who is forsaken and pierced. Anybody familiar with among the last words of Jesus on the cross? Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And most of us, we, we, we read that and we go, how sad. The father just left him. No. Do you realize what that is? That is the first line of Psalm 22. And Psalm 22 begins with, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from my deliverance and from my words of groaning? And then it begins to describe in Psalm 22 a man who is groaning, a man who is crucified and pierced, but a man who is victorious by the time the psalm is over. And so when Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's not saying, God, why'd you leave me alone? He's saying, Psalm 22, that's mine. That's talking about me. And I'm the one who came to be pierced. And I'm the one who, by the time we're all done, will be victorious. Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 and 2. The prophet tells us that the man who is to come, he will rescue the lost and the oppressed. He'll be the one who who lifts them up and gives them life. Isaiah 7, 14 tells us that the man who will come to redeem us, this man of promise, this man that it looks like the plan has gone awry, but know that the plan is still unfolding, he will be born of a virgin. Most of us are familiar. Christmas is coming up, right? And the virgin shall be with child. We know that one. Every little kid's going to read it in a play, you know, somewhere, sometime. We, we know. And this is part of the promise. This is part of God saying, my plan's not gone sideways when it looks like the kingdom has failed and the kings have failed and the prophets have failed and the priests have failed and the temple has failed and Jerusalem has failed. I want you to know my plan is still moving forward because none of these men were the redeemer. And let me give you a little bit more detail. Let me tell you about who you should be looking for. That the redeemer, the man who is to come, he will suffer and die 
for the sins of his people. Now, this is a brand new concept. To think that a king, a redeemer, a Messiah wouldn't come in and conquer, but would instead come in and suffer for the sins of others. And so God is slowly, even as the kingdom of Israel is crumbling, and it looks like his plans for glory and redemption are falling short, God is saying, my plans aren't done. In fact, there's more. But wait, there's more. But wait, there's even more about this man. It's going to blow your mind. And he's going to do amazing things. He's going to be a man who will will be preceded by Elijah, Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. And that is an office of someone who comes and declares the day of the Lord and and that God is coming. He'll be called out of Egypt, Hosea 11.1. He'll be called God's son, Psalm chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. And so even as things are failing, prophecies are being written saying there's still a Messiah coming, there's still a king coming, there's still a man who will come and save you. And here's what he's going to look like. He'll be the son of man, Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. And that picture of the son of man isn't mean he'll be human, but in Daniel chapter 7, the son of man is actually one to whom all authority in heaven and in earth is given. And so we've got these beautiful prophecies, who he's going to be. Micah 5.2 says he'll be born in Bethlehem. So we had this picture that was kind of fuzzy in the beginning. He'll come from Abraham, he'll be a man, he'll, he'll be a king, he'll be a prophet, he'll be a priest. And now the picture is becoming more and more refined over these years of suffering and wandering and failure. As, as it looks like Israel is failing, God is saying, No, we're not there yet. We're not done yet. And let me keep painting a picture for you of what this man who will save you will look like. He goes on to say in other places, he'll be the object of a murder plot, Jeremiah 31, 15. He'll be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. He'll be called a Nazarene. He'll perform signs of healing. And he'll be a light for all the nations. Isaiah chapter 42, verses 1 through 7. If you were to open up your YouVersion app, I I think I included every one of these verses in there. So you can scroll through there and read each of these verses in their original places. Others of you, you, you're maybe going, Michael, why are you blasting through this so fast? Because we'd be here until 4 in the afternoon if we just looked up every one of these. But I want you to know that in the Old Testament, there's prophecy after prophecy after prophecy regarding Jesus. This man who is to come who will save us. And and in the midst of what looks like failure for God's plan, God's actually saying, no, be patient. My plan is still unfolding. No, be patient. This man is more than you ever expected. He's more than you ever dreamed and he is still coming. My plan is still unfolding. And here's what God's word says in Galatians. Chapter four, verse four. The apostle Paul writes and says this. When the time came to completion, God sent his son. In other words, why did God wait so long? Why did God let bad happen? Why did God wait for things to unfold? Well, because God was waiting for the perfect time to send Jesus. And you might say, well, what made that time perfect? And I'll tell you, I don't know because I'm not God. 
Now, I have, I have some guesses, right? When Jesus came, there was this beautiful uh, empire, the Roman Empire. They had built roads, and they had p- this piece. It was called the Pax Romana, over a huge portion of the known world. And so Jesus was ta- born into a time of amazing peace, and his message had an opportunity to carry for thousands of miles because of peace and stable governance and roads, and, and, and so it's this perfect time. Now, you might say, well, why didn't God wait for the internet? Because there's too much garbage on the internet. Jesus would have been drowned out by the other kooks. Uh, or by the kooks. He's not a kook, right? But God waited for his plan to come to pass until the time was just perfect. But up until then, up until the moment that Jesus arrives on the scene in the Old Testament in the midst of what looks like failure, what looks like shortcomings, like looks like God's plan has been sidetracked, it was always sure. His plan was always certain, and he was always unfolding it bit by bit to reveal to us who the Messiah is and why we should worship him. It's kind of like this. Uh, some of you guys have maybe seen something like this. Uh, painters who get on the stage and they, they paint. This is actually sped up, so don't think this guy's as fast. Um, but... They get up and they, they start painting and, you know, it's, it's usually some worshipful music and stuff. In fact, I think this is a, a six-minute video in total that I brought down to just a minute. But you see, he's, he's putting elements in. He's, he's saying, here's a little bit and a little bit of this and a little bit of this. And, and he's painting. And, and then all of a sudden, the painting begins to look like it doesn't make sense. It, it begins to look like he's just throwing paint on the canvas. And we maybe begin to wonder, has he screwed up so bad that this is irredeemable? You know, is this just going to end up an ashtray? Um, what is he doing here? And he just keeps slathering paint on, and, and we end up with, with just this, this, what is going on here? But after all of the elements and all of the confusion, as it unfolds, we get a proper perspective, and we begin to see what he's trying to communicate to us. Jesus. And, and the Old Testament is like that. Over the course of, of thousands, 2,000 years or so, God slowly reveals bit by bit who this man that will come and save us is. And he gives us a little bit of the picture, and he gives us a little bit more of the picture. And then the picture starts getting really messy, and it looks like nothing good could come of this. And it looks like, well, how is there any hope? I mean, God's people are scattered. The temple is destroyed. It looks like his plans are completely messed up. But God continues to paint the picture. He continues to, to throw paint in places we don't think there should be paint. He be, continues to, to slather it across the, the bright spots to, to darken things that we thought should be light, to lighten things that we thought should be dark. And then he throws in some more color over here and, and, and movement over there. And then, and then all of a sudden, we get to Matthew chapter 1. We get to the beginning of the New Testament and he flips the picture over and we see it was Jesus the whole time. We see that everything that he added in, all the things that seemed chaotic and out of control, we see that all the things that looked like his plans were gone awry, like nothing good could ever come of that painting. Nothing good could ever come of what's going on there. What are you thinking, God? And he begins to keep slathering on little bits and clues and, and, and foreshadowings, and then finally we get to Jesus. And, and that's really, when we're talking about the exile, we're talking about this era in the Old Testament history, it looks like everything has failed. 
But God's plan is sure. And he continues to reveal. And eventually it gets us to Jesus. Because this is true and will always be true. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart from generation to generation. God's plans are and have been and always will be sure. When he says something will come to pass, it will come to pass. When he describes what the Messiah will look like, guess what we find out in the New Testament? That's exactly what he looks like. Jesus either fulfills every Old Testament prophet for the Messiah in his first coming or promises to fulfill them in his second coming. And we see over 300 prophecies in the Old Testament that are just so easily and clearly fulfilled in the 33 years that Jesus lived and walked this earth. It's because God's plan was always sure. God's Messiah was always Jesus, the only begotten Son of God. God, when he promises, when he declares it, when he says it will happen, it will happen for sure. God's glorious plan for our redemption as a people and as individuals has always been sure. God's never been playing catch up in our lives. Nothing has ever happened in our lives, in our country, in our history, where God all of a sudden goes, oh no, what will I do next? But his plans have always been certain. And the next step is his before we even know what's going to happen in the first step. He is God. And he is sure. Which is why we are told things like this in Proverbs. Commit your activities to the Lord and your plans will be established The Lord has prepared everything for his purpose, even the wicked for the day of disaster. This verse and others like it reveal to us so very clearly there is nothing in this life that is a surprise when it comes to God's plans when it comes to who he is and and what he's ordained for us. He doesn't all of a sudden go, oh no, I didn't know that guy would get into office. I got to rework the whole schedule. No, his plans are sure. And everything has been prepared for what? His purpose. And what's his purpose? You know, I think we we struggle with that. Philosophers still struggle with that, right? Theologians still struggle with that. But what is God's purpose? It is the best we understand it to reveal his glory and to call unto himself a people to love and to care for and to live with him forever. And that's his plan. That's his purpose, that he would be glorified and that he would call unto himself a people that will love him forever. And when we, we look at that, we see, well, it just doesn't seem fair that there would be wicked and there would be evil and there would be failure. Couldn't you just make everything rosy and perfect, God? Apparently not. This is the best world possible to achieve the purpose that God has to glorify himself and reveal his glory to all of creation 
and to call unto himself a people that he can love and will love him. And that kind of brings us down to the nitty-gritty, though, doesn't it? Because then we begin to, to question, well, I can see maybe the big picture, but what about God's plan for my life? What about God's plan for my life? Because I feel like maybe I'm in a place that's kind of like the children of Israel. I'm in captivity to things I don't want to be in captivity to. Everything I thought was working out has come crashing to the ground. The king is gone, the temple's gone, the city's gone. Everything has gone awry. And, and I can't give an explanation for, for why. And I can't tell you, hey, I know everything's going to be perfect. Because what resulted for the Israelites is, was 70 years of captivity. 70 years of struggle. But it was still part of God's plan. And it was still the unfolding of redemption for them and for all of us. And brought us to Jesus, ultimately. So what, what about God's plan for your life? Well, let me tell you, if you're struggling, the number one thing I can tell you, I know for a fact, is God's plan for your life is that you would surrender to Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Like if you want to know what's the, 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 the most important thing I can do in my life to be in God's will, number one, his desire for you, his plan for you, the thing he has try to bring you to, the point he's trying to get you to is to surrender to Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Every one of us, and, and if you've been here long enough, you know that we were all created by God. We were lovingly shaped by him. First Adam and Eve out of the dust, but all of us knit together in our mother's womb. And he created us for a purpose, to walk in fellowship with him, to love him and be loved by him. But first in Adam and Eve, and then all of us, we have rebelled against the God who created us to be loved and in submission to him. We rebelled against him, said, no, we're going to do life our own way. We sinned against him and earned for ourselves his wrath and the judgment of death. But he loved us so much that he tells this whole story in the Old Testament about his plan and how much he loves us and how we can't get right with him on our own, but he sent a man who was also God incarnate, who lived a perfect and sinless life and died on the cross to take your place, to take your judgment, to absorb on your behalf the wrath of God and the payment for sin. And then he didn't stay dead but he was buried and rose again on the third day to prove he really is the son of God who can forgive your sins. He really is the king of all creation. He's the son of man who has been given authority over all things. And, and so I know beyond a shadow of a doubt, the first thing that God wants for your life is for you to submit and to surrender to Jesus as your Lord and Savior. And God says this in his word, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. In other words, you make a public profession that Jesus, the man God, who died on the cross from your, for your sins and rose again on the third day, that he is your Lord. He is the king of your life. He is the one who rules over you. He is the one who has been given authority over you to save you from sin and make you alive again. Confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. In other words, proving that he really is who he says he is and really can do what he says he can do. You will be saved. And I can say beyond a shadow of a doubt, I know for each and every one of us, 
the first thing God wants for us to be in his will, to be in his plan for us, is to trust Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. And if you've never done that, today can be your day of salvation. Because look, this, this plan, it isn't something that God just kind of sprung on you today. This is a plan that he's had since day one of creation. Since the moment Adam and Eve fell, he has been planning out in the midst of things that looked like failure and looked like mistakes and looked like things that were going sideways, he's been planning out how to bring you to this moment today where you will come to a point and say, I trust Jesus with all that I am. That's his plan for you, and it's been his plan since day one. I can know that beyond a shadow of a doubt, but what, what about the next step? What, what about, you know, well, what else should I do? Well, well, understand that this is good, and it pleases God our Savior, who wants everyone to, say, to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Let's stick with that for a moment. Stick with the fact his first plan for you is to be saved and get to know him better. His next step for you and for me is to realize that we submit our own plans to his control. He's got a plan, and we like to make plans too, don't we? And what happens with our plans? If your plans are anything like my plans, I feel more like I'm on the price of right, you know, and it's dun 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 dun, you know, in the beginning, and then by the time my plan is done, it's wah wah wah, right? And so, once you've trusted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you and I, all of us should realize, he's got a plan and I'm going to submit my life to his plan. Now, this is, this is an active thing, actually. This isn't a, God just revealed to me where to go to college or who to marry or, you know, where to live. But it is an active thing because every day we have to make a choice to live according to what he's already told us we should be doing. And the standards by which he's already given to us. So submit your plans to his control. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not rely on your own understanding. In all your ways, know him and he will make your path straight. In other words, once you have followed God's plan for your life and trusted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, now it's time to follow his plan for your life and every day submit your desires to what he has told you is right, man and woman and live in the way that he has asked. A person's heart plans his ways, but the Lord determines his steps. You know what's funny is scripture actually tells us even when you don't submit your plans to God, he's still the one in control. But all you've done is created tension in your relationship with him if you're trying to live your plans and your desires over his. Brothers and sisters, submit yourself and your plans to the control of the Almighty God. And then trust in his constant work that will bring his plans to pass. Look, the Old Testament, right? We we said it's a messy picture that uh, that God is painting over time of who the Redeemer will be. It's It's a picture that looks chaotic, and it looks like it doesn't make sense, and it looks like it's failed a number of times, like the whole plan gets knocked off the rails, but the truth is, it was always on track. And the same is true for his plans and his promises in your life. We've all had days, weeks, years, seasons, maybe your whole life where it felt like, can this really be right? This feels like I'm off the rails. 
And yet still we are called, once we've trusted Jesus as our Lord and Savior, once we enter into that daily practice of turning our plans over to his plans, that we're supposed to be trusting long-term in what he has planned for us. Here's, a, here's what's so cool about what God's word says to us. 1 Corinthians 2.9 says this, but as it is written, what no eye has seen, no ear has heard, and no human heart has conceived, God has prepared these things for those who love him. When you trust in the plans of God long-term, when you say, ordain my footsteps, I trust in you, I will go where you say, I will live how you, you, you command, I, I will walk as you ask, I, I will try and be faithful. When you live like that in submission to him, the beauty is, is none of us can even dream of all the good that he has prepared for us. Now, we, we gotta play the card, right? We gotta say, Sometimes the good is in this life, but always and every time the perfect good is in the life to come. The fullness, the restored life that is ours as believers when we pass from this section of our living into the next and we see Jesus face to face. Ephesians chapter 3 verses 20 and 21. Now, to him who is able to do above and beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. So who is the one who is able to do above and beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works uh, within us? That is God. And, And we see that there is this promise that he is able to do more than we could ever have imagined. And he's worthy of all of our glory and all of the worth and all of our praise forever and ever. In Philippians chapter one, the apostle Paul says this, I am sure of this. And he doesn't say, I hope this. He doesn't say, this is usually the case. He doesn't say, nine times out of 10, this is how it works out. He says this, I am sure of this. Believer, Christian, That he who started a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. That God is at work in you. He has a plan for you. He has a purpose for you. It begins with salvation in Christ Jesus. It continues as a daily choice to submit yourself to walking in accordance with his plans. And then it, it carries on forever into eternity with a lifelong commitment to say, I will follow you and live for you no matter what. It's a moment, it's a daily choice, it's a forever promise. And we are confident that when we live like that, he who started a good work in you will not stop until you are exactly like he promised you you would be. Looking like Jesus, living with Jesus forever and ever in his presence with nothing more to say other than hallelujah. All this and Jesus when we're dead, right? I mean, just, yeah. So the final three words this morning, just as we wrap up, things for you to remember. Maybe you could even get a tattoo. I don't know, not encouraging tattoos, just saying. Maybe you need a tattoo. And it's gonna say this, to surrender to Jesus, to submit your life to him daily, and then to trust in his long-term plans for you. Surrender, submit, and trust. 
And just like in the Old Testament, the picture of the Messiah slowly took form until it's fully revealed in the New Testament. God's plans and his purposes in your life will slowly and over time take form. And the day will come when it's just right, when God says it's time, that the fullness of the good works he has planned for you will come to pass and you will see the perfection of his plan and you will rejoice. But until that day, surrender to Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Submit to him every day and trust in his long-term plan for your life because it is a good plan and the resolution of it is perfection. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Father God, we thank you so much for today. We thank you for your word and how it just reveals to us so many good and great things. We thank you for the whole of the Old Testament and how throughout you slowly showed us that your son was coming and who he would be and what he would look like and what he would accomplish. And we're so thankful that you took the time to reveal to us the bigger picture that you took the time to reveal to us your perfect plans, that you took the time to reveal to us our Savior, our King. And so this morning, I pray that you would help us to take all of this great thousands of years of lesson and apply it to our own lives first by submitting to you, Lord Jesus. And we, we do pray that if there's anyone who's not saved this morning, that they would take the time to speak to someone else and say, what must I do to be saved? And then everyone, once we have been saved, that we would daily turn our plans over to you and submit to you as king. That we would follow your word. We would not just listen to your word, but we would do what it says. And then finally, that when things are difficult, when there are times of struggle, that we would trust your long-term plan and know that it's worth just keeping on that we might see the fulfillment of it as you've promised. Thank you so much for your goodness, your grace, and your love. And we pray that we might be faithful, Lord Jesus, even as you've been faithful to us already. It's in your name that we pray this morning and worship and sing and rejoice. Amen. Let's close together with our last song.
As we submit to the plans of God for our life, I got one challenge for all of us. Whether you loved the results of Tuesday or you hate them, submitting to the plan of God for our life includes this. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1. First of all, then, I urge that petitions, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for everyone, for kings and all those who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good 
and it pleases God our Savior, who wants everyone to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. That part of being and walking in the perfect plan of God is submitting to what his word tells us. So I encourage you, whether you love or hate politics, always be in prayer for the leaders, for those that God has placed in authority over us, because scripture also tells us that there is no one in authority other than those that the plan of God has placed in authority over us, sometimes for good, sometimes for judgment. And so I encourage you to be people of prayer as you live in the plans of God this week. God bless. We'll see you throughout the week in our small groups and stuff. Then the next Sunday, of course, Sunday Bible school and our gathering time and a great fellowship meal. So bring a dessert to share. Even if it's just like a a little Debbie or a ho-ho, bring something and uh, share and spend that time with us. God bless you guys.